the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Pharaoh's left to stand before Moses alone. God, in his mercy, will strip away everything we use to comfort ourselves when we're in rebellion to him. Because you called us as your own. You brought us to your fold. He will strip away everything we use to comfort ourselves. But even then, he doesn't violate our will. See, God is so mercifully patient, but he must bring justice if we continually reject his mercy. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join senior pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. God has been trying to reason with Pharaoh of Egypt. Moses and Aaron have been asking for the freedom of the children of Israel. In chapter 8 of Exodus, we look through the first four wonders, otherwise known as plagues, that God sent unto Egypt. We pick up with Pastor Will in Exodus chapter 9, verse 1. We are smack dab in the middle of the second part of Exodus. The first part was God calling Moses his servant, and now we're, we're in this section where God is fulfilling his first promise to Israel to bring them out of the bond of Egypt. Of Egypt. Remember, he made three promises to Israel, that he would bring them out of Egypt, that he would bring them into the land, promised land, and that he would be their God and they would be his people. And so at this point, as he's bringing them out of, out of Egypt, the focus isn't so much on Israel because he has to deal with the one who's keeping them from leaving Egypt, which is not Moses or Israel, but Pharaoh. And so in this section, the focus has shifted to Pharaoh from Moses, the servant of God, to Pharaoh, the adversary, and, and the contest between him and God. But, but the truth is, it's, it's not really much of a contest at all. It is indeed, as we read in the scriptures, a fearful thing to stubbornly reject the living God and to fall into his almighty hand. For he isn't a man that changes his mind or makes mistakes. He doesn't negotiate, you know, he doesn't compromise. He creates us with good purposes out of his great love, and then he commands us to follow him. And so this evening, as we look at chapter 9 and three more signs that are given, three more strokes that he brings upon Egypt, let's not fight those purposes like we see Pharaoh continue to do in this chapter. So Exodus 9 verse 1. Remember we had the Nile was turned to blood and then after that it was frogs and then lice and then flies. And so now God's going to up the ante. Verse 1 chapter 9 with the fifth sign or fifth stroke with disease. Then the Lord said unto Moses, go in unto Pharaoh and tell him, thus says the Lord, God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and will hold them still, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon your cattle, which is in your field, and upon the horses, and upon the asses, and upon the camels, and upon the oxen, and upon the sheep. There shall be a very grievous murrain. And the Lord shall sever between the cattle of Israel and the cattle of Egypt, and there shall nothing die of all that is the children's of Israel. And the Lord appointed a set time saying, tomorrow the Lord shall do this thing in the land. 
So here we find Pharaoh, God sends Moses again into Pharaoh's presence and gives the same exact command again. Let my people go that they may serve me. It sounds like a broken record, but again, I can't reiterate enough. God doesn't change his mind. God doesn't negotiate. You know, Pharaoh thinks he's God's equal and he's been treating the Israelites as if they were his to use however he wanted. But he says, let my people go that they may serve me. There's only one God out there and I'm not him and neither are you. People aren't my servants, nor do I get to use them as pieces in my grand scheme, no matter how wonderful it might be. Power and authority is a horrid thing in the hands of someone who thinks this way, who looks at people as their pieces in a puzzle. And I would ask you before we even get started, because you would think at this point in time that Pharaoh's eyes would be open and he would see the pain and the hardship he's causing and it would grab his heart. How do we view those God has given us authority over? Maybe you have authority over people in your work environment. Maybe you're a parent. How do we view those who are entrusted to our care that God has given us authority over? Do we seek to serve them? Do we seek to help them as we lead them? Or we just simply seek to use them for whatever it is that we want to accomplish? Well, God warns Pharaoh what will happen if he refuses. For if you refuse to let them go and will hold them still, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon your cattle. You know, if you will still defiantly oppose my clearly revealed will, then I am going to oppose you. I am going to do this. My hand is going to be upon all your livestock, upon your horses, the donkeys, the camels, the oxen, the sheep. There's going to be a very grievous moraine. Now, I think it's important that we mention here, it mentions that the livestock which is in the field. I bring this up because the disease would not affect the stabled livestock. I say this because there's a, people accuse the Bible of a contradiction. In chapter 9, later on, with the seventh plague, when there's cattle that's killed by the plague of hail, and they say, wait a second, if all the cattle were killed, how is there any more cattle to kill in chapter 9 and the seventh plague? And the reason is, is because this disease would not affect any stabled livestock. It would only affect the livestock that was out in the field. What is a grievous murrain. The word murrain just means that which sweeps away, a disease. It's something that's going to, that some people have suggested was anthrax. I, I don't know enough about medicine to know that. But whatever it was, it was going to be devastating to the livestock that they had. Now, in this plague, remember we've been looking at each of the plagues and how God was dealing with the deities of Egypt. And in this plague, we see the Lord, we see the Lord deal with Hathor, who was the Egyptian cow goddess. Were I to worship something, I like milk and I like steak. But I don't think that's why they worshiped the cattle. They had a cow goddess, Hathor. She was very popular because Egypt obtained its wealth from its livestock. Actually, more festivals were dedicated to her. More children were named after her than any other deity. But she had another side to her. She was also known as the Eye of Ra, the chief deity of, of Egypt. And she was called the Eye of Ra because she was Ra's chief defender, sent by him to bring destruction when, when things got bad in Egypt. Her method of destruction was often disease. Now, I find this fascinating because God threatens to take out the animals. She represents with her assigned power, disease. In doing so, God declares that he alone is in control of the cattle and disease, not Egypt's most beloved deity. And so we find here in verse 5, the Lord gives Pharaoh a day to comply. He appointed a set time saying, tomorrow the Lord shall do this thing in the land. So that this way they wouldn't see it as just a normal disease that broke out at times amongst the livestock. Now, this would be the first sign to affect personal property. God is upping the severity to get Egypt's attention. He'll do this with every single plague. 
Now, while it will begin to work on some of the people, it's not working on Pharaoh. Look at what verse 6 says. And the Lord did that thing on the morrow, and all the cattle of Egypt died. Now, remember, he already clarified all the cattle of the field. But of the cattle of the children of Israel died not one. So Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not one of the cattle of the Israelites dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Again, we have no record of Pharaoh's refusal to comply, but it's clear he refused since the plague came. And at this point here, it's interesting. God sends Moses and he just says, tell him it's going to happen, and then it happens. No waving of, the, of Moses' staff this time. God affected this without any fanfare to ensure Egypt knew it was about a magical rod or powerful men. This was Jehovah himself come down to touch them in judgment. You would think this would be one of the moments that humanity would sit back and go, okay, God, I get it, you win. But look at Pharaoh's reaction of disbelief. He actually sends scouts to Goshen to see if any of their livestock was affected. And then by the word behold, it means he's shocked when he finds out the answer. They come back with a report and he's floored when he finds out that they actually, yeah, that none of them were affected. He really didn't expect it to be that way. And so either way, when he finds it out, it says he hardened his heart. Despite all this, he continues and his prideful arrogance and stubbornness toward God. Now, it's easy to look at all this and say, well, how could anyone be so stubborn? But I see it all the time. I see it all the time. I'll have people sitting right in front of me and I'll have them read a scripture and I say, okay, what does the Bible say here? Okay, it says you should do this. Okay, so you know, this is the counsel I have to offer you. What do you think you need to do? Well, I don't need to do that. Okay, all right. So now you, by your own admission, cited that this is what God says you should do. Yeah, I understand, but God's making a special exception in my case. I've heard those words so many times. God understands my situation and he's okay with it. And I think you are fooling yourself. You might think the act is working with others, but you are fooling yourself. The truth is this. All the evidence that God provides to get our attention won't change a heart that wants what it wants and will do anything to get it. And I've observed that over time. See, a decision must be made to yield my will to his. And until that happens, the mounting evidence actually only increases a person's guilt. It doesn't fix the problem. And I want to encourage you, if you're stubbornly refusing to yield to God's word today, waiting for him to somehow write it in the sky to convince you to change, you need to realize that you wouldn't even if he did write it in the sky. Yield now. Get it over with and save yourself the trouble of an even harder heart. Well, in verse 8, we get to the next plague, the next sign, sign number 6. And the Lord said unto Moses and unto Aaron, Take to you handfuls of ashes of the furnace, and let Moses sprinkle it toward the heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. And it shall become small dust in all the land of Egypt, and shall be a boil breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beasts throughout all the land of Egypt. So here, there's no warning that we're aware of, except that they do it in the presence or the sight of Pharaoh when they actually enact the plague. Remember, plague three, plague six, and plague nine are all together. They, they, there's no warning they're given at all. God just says, do it. Because he hardened his heart, no warning this time, just do it. Now, it's interesting here. God instructs Moses, he says, take a handful of ashes of the furnace and let Moses sprinkle it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. Now, the question is, where does he get these ashes from? If he's doing it in the presence of Pharaoh, then it meant he got them from a purified royal furnace. Now, 
These were usually ritual furnaces, sometimes used for human sacrifice, more often used by the Egyptian magicians to sacrifice to their god of wisdom and medicine, Imhotep. Now, if that name sounds familiar, if any of you have seen The Mummy, it's based on this guy. Imhotep is actually one of the few uh, Egyptian gods who is based upon a real person, that he ascended to deified godhood. He was a powerful priest and a skilled architect in ancient Egypt. And after being deified, he became the patron god of all Egyptian physicians. So when they would take these ashes, very often a sacrifice to Imhotep, they would take the ashes and they would actually throw them into the sky to to provide healing throughout the land. So these ashes that if Moses is there in the presence of Pharaoh, and that's where he gets the ashes, these ashes would be a symbol of healing to the Egyptians. Well, God shows his superiority over Imhotep by turning those ashes into something very horrible. For it says the small dust, verse 9, in all the land of Egypt shall be a boil breaking forth with blains upon man. I don't even need to look that up to know I don't want it. That's, that's all, boils with blains. What is a blain? I, I don't want it. That's all I know. It, it, it sounds horrible. When Moses tosses this clump of ashes into the air, they supernaturally transform into these tiny bits of dust that blow in every direction. And wherever they go, these boils break out. Now, The boil that's being referred to here would be an eruption of the skin that had a hard central core that would ooze pus. That's what the blains are. These are festering ulcers that arise from the spreading pus. Deuteronomy 28, 27 lists this as the botch of Egypt, a common infection in that part of the world. In fact, some in Egypt call them Nile blisters. It would start to break out as little pimples upon reddened skin, similar to scarlet fever. In fact, sometimes over there it's misdiagnosed as scarlet fever. And this would produce a burning and prickling sensation upon the skin, which would cause infection to spread. Its end result was a bunch of crowded, oozing, elevated pimples that was extremely painful. You grossed out yet? (laughs) If you had these things, you'd make it difficult to do anything but lie down on an uninfected area. Now, interestingly, this is actually similar to the symptoms of the West Nile virus, which is why they call it that. I didn't know that. I thought that was interesting. Well, verse 10. They got their instructions, so they go before Pharaoh, and they took the ashes of the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, semicolon, and then Moses sprinkles it toward the heaven, and it becomes this boil with blains, okay? I think it's fascinating here that Moses takes these ashes, he's holding them in his hand, and he stands before Pharaoh, semicolon, which means a pause. He takes the ashes, and he stands before Pharaoh with the ashes in his hand. It's almost as if he's saying, please don't make me do this. Give in. Obey the Lord. Stop being so stubborn. This is the first sign of Moses' frustration with Pharaoh for bringing judgment upon his own nation through his pride. We're going to see it build through further signs that Moses becomes increasingly frustrated. Why are you doing this, Pharaoh? Why are you fighting? Why will you destroy yourself? And in this, we see the heart of God who cries out and, and he says, why will you die? I see Christians who rejoice in the death or the downfall of the wicked. I frequently hear things like, good, they got what was coming to them. But do you realize that isn't God's heart? God asks the question of himself in Ezekiel 32, 23. He asks the question. People assume he delights in it. And so he asks himself the question. He says this, Ezekiel 18, 23. That was the song this morning that, that Justin shared with us. Wasn't that a beautiful song this morning? Oh man, that was an awesome song. That was written by somebody on, on our team. Beautiful song. 
He says, Ezekiel 18, 23, have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? God asks the question, says the Lord, and not that he should turn from his ways and live. He answers his own question in verses 31 and 32 of the same chapter. He says, cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby you have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dies, says the Lord God. Wherefore, turn you yourselves and live. Now that's interesting. God says he has no pleasure, zero amount of pleasure in the death of the wicked. God's heart doesn't delight in it at all. It's confirmed again in the New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, when he says this, in reference to the scoffers and those who scoff about God's return, how he'll bring judgment. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise of returning, as some men count slackness, but he is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do you know? People say, you can't resist God's will. I'm like, really? Because it says he's not willing that any should perish, and I know that some perish. God doesn't want anyone to perish. Anyone. He loves each and every individual. He loves Pharaoh. And here we see Moses pleading with him, please don't make me do this. And if that's God's heart and it's Moses' heart, why isn't it our heart? I knew when I was supposed to be with Calvary Chapel many years ago, I was a young pastor, Calvary pastor, and I was at a pastor's conference, and this was when we'd invaded Iraq, and we captured Saddam Hussein, and Saddam Hussein was eventually tried and executed. On the day of his execution, we were at the conference, and someone announced that Saddam Hussein had been executed. And it was interesting, when I looked around the entire room, there was a somber mood. There was a sense that we would look at each other in the eye, and we were... Glad that he couldn't hurt anyone else anymore. But there's also a sense of grief. Because there's a reality that we understood it was very unlikely that that man ever got right with God before he died. That someone very likely just passed into a Christless eternity. And so we were not rejoicing for that. We were sad about that. Even though we were happy he couldn't hurt anyone anymore. And I remember looking around and I thought, this is the right bunch of guys. Because that's the heart of God. He does what must be done. He must punish the wicked, but he takes no delight in it whatsoever. Now, we know that Pharaoh doesn't say anything. So Moses sprinkled it up toward the heaven and it became a boil breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. But if these boils struck Pharaoh also, which we have every reason to believe, he would have summoned his magicians to fix it. They also served as his physicians. What a surprise when the very followers of Imhotep are themselves struck with boils so severe they can't even present themselves before Moses to stand on Pharaoh's behalf. Pharaoh's left to stand before Moses alone. God, in his mercy, will strip away everything we use to comfort ourselves when we're in rebellion to him. He will strip away everything we use to comfort ourselves. But even then, he doesn't violate our will. So when Pharaoh refuses to respond to this clear defeat before God, God confirms his choice. Verse 12 says, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had spoken unto Moses. He says, you want this, Pharaoh? It's not what I want, but if this is what you want, you've got it. One of the saddest things God can do is give us what we want. Do you know that? Sometimes one of the saddest things God can do is give us what we want. You've been fighting me so long for this. You've been fighting me so hard for this. Fine, you can have it. And it usually turns to ashes, doesn't it? Don't despise God's discipline in your life. We were talking the other day and we said, 
You can always tell the difference between someone who is growing in the Lord and someone who's not. Because someone who's growing in the Lord is open to correction. Someone who's not isn't. It's that simple. And that's what the Bible says in the book of Proverbs. It says a wise man receives correction. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11, it teaches us to not despise God's chastening, to not despise his discipline. It says these words. It says, you have forgotten the exhortation, Hebrews 12, verse 5. You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as unto children or sons. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. I... <laughs> I'm sure my kids probably think I kind of rejoice in discipline. They probably think at times like, oh, here comes dad. He's ready to give it. And they probably see my face sometimes. <laughs> I've had a bad day. I'm taking it out on somebody. But I don't. You know, those times when you, know, when you hear it and, and you're patient. You're like, please resolve this. Please resolve this. Please resolve this. But you hear it start to escalate. And they're more unkind and more unkind and more unkind. And finally, you know, you, you just, you know, you slowly move this way because you're like, I hope they fix it before I get there. Because if I get there, I have to do something. I'm not saying no parent because there's some that are twisted, but a parent who loves their child doesn't look forward to disciplining them, but they do it because they love their child. I tell my kids, I say, you know why daddy spanked you? Or you know why daddy you know, grounded you? Or you know why daddy disciplined you just now? It's because I don't want you to grow up and become a hellion. I don't want you to grow up and think you can act however you want and there's no consequences. I'm doing this because I love you. And my dad used to tell me, this is hurting me more than it hurts you. And I still think he was lying. So, (laughs) but how do you and I respond to God's discipline in our lives? Do we harden our heart or do we yield to the lesson? If we endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father does not chasten? When God is disciplining you, it's a great thing because it's a sign you're his. I get worried when he lets me get away with stuff because <laughs> then I don't know. You know what I mean. I start to wonder because I know the Lord loves me enough that he deals with me when I'm not where I should be. Verse 13, we now move to the seventh sign, hail mingled with fire. And the Lord said unto Moses, rise up early in the morning. If you're going to send a plague on a nation, you want to get up early in the morning to get a good start. Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say unto him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Same tune, same thing. And yet verse 14, God adds something else. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon your heart and upon your servants and upon your people that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. You know what God is saying at this point? He goes, prior to this, Pharaoh, I've held back. I've attacked your land. I've attacked your property. I've brought irritating and painful things into your lives, but I've left you guys alive. It's not because I had to, and it's not because I couldn't. See, God is so mercifully patient, but he must bring justice if we continually reject his mercy. And so God tells him, the gloves are coming off now, Pharaoh. Now, if I'm Pharaoh by this point, I'm thinking the gloves are coming off. I give up. I've always said, you know, when I see God put the WWE outfit on, I just get in the pin position. It's not worth the fight. When the spandex comes out, just get on the mat. He says, at this time, I'm going to bring all my plagues. And this word is different. This means, the word plagues means that which causes casualties, whether through war or through some type of supernatural event. And he tells Pharaoh, he says, these plagues, these death blows will be upon your heart. They will be a mortal blow, a death blow. There will be no surviving this if you disobey. God in verse 15 reasons with Pharaoh. 
He says, for now I will stretch out my hand that I may smite you and your people with pestilence and you shall be cut off from the earth. And in this very, in very deed for this cause have I raised you up for to show in you my power and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. And as yet you exalt yourself against my people that you will not let them go. He says, listen, I'm done holding back. I am going to throw everything I've got at you from this point forward to try to get you to change. I could have done that before this. That's what verse 15 says. For now I will stretch out my hand. Some translators see this actually as a conditional clause. They say it means if I had chosen to deal with you this way from the start, you'd be dead already. Because that's what it means here. For now, if I were to stretch, if I would have stretched forth my hand to smite you and your people with, with this pestilence, these death, these casualty causing plagues, you would have been cut off from the earth. You'd already be gone. But see, this is God reasoning with Pharaoh here. He says, don't you see what you're about to bring on yourself and your people by resisting me? I could have done it already, but I didn't create you for that. I created you for something greater, to yield to my plan and let my people go. Verse 16, and in very deed for this cause have I raised you up not to do this. The phrase there in very deed means on the other hand. I could have wiped you out before this moment, but on the other hand, that's not what I want to do. The reason I haven't wiped you out is because that's not my plan for you. On the other hand, what is God's plan? He says, for this cause have I raised you up. I established you securely in your position to show in you my power and that my name would be declared throughout all the earth. And he says, as yet, which means do you, and yet do you still exalt yourself against my people to not let them go? He says, Pharaoh, I had an awesome plan for your life. I established your throne, making you a ruler who wasn't subservient to the other political factions in your land. But I did it so that you would have the absolute freedom to let my people go when I said the word, to show you how powerful I was and to get glory for my name among Egypt and the other heathen nations. You, Pharaoh, were to be one of my greatest witnesses, but you have resisted that plan. And for that, I could have wiped you out the moment you got in my way, but I haven't. I've shown you mercy. God is a God of mercy. He gives all men opportunity after opportunity to humble themselves and repent of their sins. But when someone is stubbornly and purposefully against God, he will have no choice but to allow punishment, and it breaks his heart. Don't let stubborn pride keep you away from a relationship with our God. But if you have questions or would like prayer concerning today's message or for anything at all, please reach out to us. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.